Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is Here and Now Anytime. We're glad to have you join us for our daily mix of news to keep you up on what's happening today, as well as giving you a longer view through stories of arts, culture, and music. Lots of stuff for you every day, so subscribe, follow, and share. Here we go. But they did not challenge the the factual finding that Donald Trump did indeed engage in insurrection. Is Trump disqualified because of insurrection? The case based on the 14th Amendment is one step closer to the U.S. Supreme Court. It is Thursday, December 28th from NPR and WBUR Boston. Welcome to Here and Now, Anytime. I'm Shirley Jihad. On the show for you today, we had a year of extremes in the climate, so we're going to take a look at what unfolded last year and how, like little tiny sprigs up from the soil, some things are moving in the right direction, just a little too incrementally right now, and what may be ahead for next year. And then the life and legacy of some superstars of the last century, honoring the artistry and activism of Harry Belafonte. Sinead O'Connor, Tina Turner, and other singers who impacted generations and who passed away in 2023. Up first now, the 14th Amendment disqualifies candidates for federal office if they've participated in insurrection. Does this clause in the U.S. Constitution mean Donald Trump is disqualified from running? Colorado's Supreme Court said, yes, Trump is disqualified. Michigan's high court didn't come to the same conclusion, ruling instead on a procedural issue. Former U.S. attorney and current University of Michigan law professor Barbara McQuaid takes up this question and lets us know where we're going from here. She talks with Deepa Fernandez. Explain why the two courts in Michigan and Colorado ruled so differently, Barbara. Is it because Colorado law limits the ballot to qualified candidates and Michigan law doesn't have that language? Yes, that's right. You know, every state is different in how they administer their elections. And so the key to the difference came in actually the concurring opinion of one of the justices who wrote that in Michigan, uh, there is not that same language that talks about being a qualified uh, uh, candidate to appear on the primary ballot. And so instead, uh, this issue could be raised later if and when Donald Trump becomes the nominee. But for the moment, the Michigan Supreme Court said under Michigan law, it would be premature. Uh, parties get to decide who they want to okay. put up as their nominee. Okay. So Michigan's court didn't weigh in on whether Trump should be disqualified from the ballot because of his role in the January 6th election. Does that mean the issue, the issue isn't over yet in Michigan? That's right. So unlike Colorado, where they actually held a trial and determined that Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection, which is the magic language under the 14th Amendment, Michigan really just ruled on a procedural issue solely as a legal matter. And so this issue could be resurrected if Donald Trump should become the nominee on the in the general election. Okay. And back to Colorado, where the Supreme Court stayed its ruling until January 4th. So Trump remains on the ballot for now because of that stay and the Republican Party appeal. But January 5th is Colorado's deadline to print its primary ballots. What happens then, Barbara? 
Yes. So the race is on to some extent. We did see an appeal, a, a, a petition for uh, a grant of certiorari with the Supreme Court yesterday by uh, the Colorado Republican Party. So that could put the ball in the court of the Supreme Court now, who has the ability to extend that stay. To me, that seems like the most likely thing to happen. I can't imagine that the U.S. Supreme Court will be able to look at this case between now and January 5th. Mm. But they could extend this day, leaving Trump on the primary ballot um, and so effectively having the same outcome that we've seen in Michigan. And just quickly on, on the Colorado, one more moment. Um, the, the GOP, their appeal is that the 14th Amendment Clause doesn't apply to the presidency. And I'm wondering if that means that then uh, they're not actually challenging the fact that, that Trump was involved in January 6th, just that it doesn't apply to him because he was the president. Yeah, it's really interesting. They they took up a few issues, but they're all sort of these procedural issues, you know, that the, that the provision is not self-executing, that it doesn't apply to the president, but they did not challenge the, the factual finding that Donald Trump did indeed engage in insurrection, which is really a pretty interesting question. And so if the Supreme Court doesn't take up that question, it could leave the Colorado decision in place. But of course, okay. the Supreme Court does have the ability to take up that question, even if it's not requested. Okay. And uh, tell us about Maine, where the Secretary of State has been asked to recuse herself. Yeah, she's made some statements um, suggesting that Donald Trump did engage in insurrection. I don't think that's a basis for recusal, though. Bases for recusal need to be things like you have a financial stake or a political stake. Barbara McQuaid, law professor at the University of Michigan. Thank you, Deepa. Coming up, superlatives you might wince at. The hottest year on record, the deadliest flood and the deadliest wildfire in the last century. We look back at the year in the environment, the climate, and look ahead at changes that are actually making a difference and would be even better if they were scaled up and implemented faster. Robin Young has more. Stay with us. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Continuing our end-of-year look at the state of our world today, climate. We can't say we weren't warned. A nation that destroys its soils destroys itself. Forests are the lungs of our land, purifying the air and giving fresh strength to our people. FDR said that. Or let's go way back. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer their guilt. 
That's the Bible. Or more recently, the climate system that raised us and raised everything we know about human culture and civilization is now, like a parent, dead. That from Climate Watcher and New York Times science writer David Wallace-Wells, one of the riveting lines in his acclaimed 2019 book, Uninhabitable Earth. He's a voice of reason and warning, and there's usually a sliver of hope, and he's back with us. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And this is such a tough topic. I, I know you have some good news, and we'll, we'll get to that, but it's just really frightening. So let's take a look at what you think is one of the most important stories of the year in the world of climate change. It was the year of extremes. You say climate scientists are calling it gobsmackingly bananas, and that's when they're being polite in the media. <laughs> One can't imagine what they're saying to each other, so remind us about the extremes. Well, I think the most remarkable thing about this year is that when it started, few scientists and few models were projecting that it would be the warmest year on record. And the fact that the, almost the entire climate scientific community was taken by surprise tells you how off the charts um, the temperatures have been this year. Just about every day was more than 1.5 degrees warmer than the pre-industrial average. And that doesn't mean that we broke that 1.5 degree barrier that we've heard so much about because they're not talking about temperatures in a single day or a single month. But it's just a sign of how far from the past that we used to rely on and know as familiar we already are. And there have been a few days, in fact, that got close to or past the two degree um, Celsius above the pre-industrial level. Thank you for reminding us that the 1.5 and the 2 degrees is above the pre-industrial levels. That's the threshold that uh, scientists and, uh, you know, climate activists have warned. We can't cross that. And now that we're sort of at it, how would you characterize that? Well, I think the main way that we're dealing with the fact that we are now living in the world that we warned ourselves was going to be almost unlivable is by normalizing. We see the news about, for instance, the floods in Libya that were the deadliest floods anywhere in the world this century, or the fire in Hawaii that was the deadliest American fire in more than 100 years, or the wildfires in Canada, which burned so much land that you could fit more than half the world's countries inside them. We pay attention to them to some degree. Sometimes we, we worry about them a little bit more than that, as when the Smoke from the Canadian fires blanketed the Northeast and the American Midwest in, in orange skies and made it hard for us to breathe for a few days. But then we move on and we worry about all the other things going on in our lives. And we're talking about these levels, 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. The reason that we know to worry about those warming levels is because of a report that was published by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in the fall of 2018. And that report was the moment that the world really started to panic it's what gave rise to all of the climate alarm, the real new generation climate strikers, Greta Thunberg. All of that came from this report. And what that report said was that the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees marks such an extreme difference that we really should do absolutely everything we can to avoid breaching that threshold. Mm. So we're now on that precipice right now, starting to experience extreme events like the ones that terrified us when they were just written about as projections in a report, and we're normalizing them as much as we are being galvanized or mobilized by them. Well, this reminds me of, uh, in your book, you quote then-Governor of California, Jerry Brown, saying of the wildfires then that it was a new normal. I'm sure he meant that as a warning. But just even the use of that word, you say the truth is scary. It's the end of normal, never normal again. We've exited the state of environmental conditions that allowed the human animal to evolve in the first place. I want to make sure we've heard, you said something about scientists aren't even, you know, they were taken by surprise. 
uh, by everything that's happened this past year and how quickly it happened. You've also told us that scientists don't entirely understand what's happening. Why don't they understand? Well, one answer is that from one year to the next, we can see quite different conditions, even if none of the underlying systems have really meaningfully changed. And they're changing in ways that interact with one another. And although we have some pretty good ideas of those interactions, we don't understand them precisely because overall, this is an experiment that we're running as a planet only once, and we're only going to get to see the results once. So scientists are able to isolate a number of factors. There is the underlying global warming trend that has to do with how much carbon we've put into the atmosphere over the past decades and centuries. There's also the El Nino, the rise of an El Nino condition in the Pacific. We know that tends to elevate global temperatures. But we're actually seeing a much larger effect right now than we tend to see at this stage of an El Nino cycle. There was a major underwater volcano event that produced all this water vapor that went up into the atmosphere. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas. There's probably some amount of effect of that going on. And then there's the sun's intensity maybe shifting slightly. And we may have miscalibrated or mischaracterized exactly how much cooling we've gotten in recent history from all the pollution that we put into the atmosphere. So You know, burning fossil fuels produces carbon, but it also produces a whole lot of other stuff in the air, a lot which is really bad for us and kills almost 10 million people a year. But it has the climate benefit of reflecting a lot of sunlight back into outer space. And that means that even while the carbon is heating the planet, we have some of this pollution at the same time counteracting that effect and cooling it. But it is a bit disconcerting, whatever it is, that we're heading into this brave new world without as clear a picture of what's putting us there as um, we might have liked. Well, then you have people who are either the climate deniers and skeptics and maybe point to, you know, some of those questions you just raised. And you have the people who are the obstructionists. We just had COP28, and you have the president of COP28, who's Sultan Al-Jabbar, who's also the UAE's chief executive of the state oil company, conflict of interest there. But he said at COP28, there's no science indicating a phase-out of fossil fuels needed to restrict global heating. They did manage to get this landmark language, though, into their final report about transitioning away from fossil fuels. Sliver of good news there. And you say there's other good news in this past year about decarbonization. Yeah, I think that that language, um, which was much softer than most activists wanted, really affirmed or described the world as we're already living it. You know, global sales of internal combustion engine cars, gas cars, they peaked in 2017. 83% of all new global energy capacity that was added last year was green. Globally, the amount of investment being put into renewables has been above the level of investment for oil and gas now for several years. So we're already waist deep in this transition. And that is itself remarkable progress that I think most people did not see coming, at least at this speed. The trouble is to hit these targets, not just the 1.5 degree target, which for my money, we've already left behind, but the two degree target, we have to move quite a bit faster. And that's why it's somewhat disappointing to see an event like COP pass with so little new commitment if we want to secure a relatively livable planet. But to say that, I don't want to diminish the claim that we are still moving in that right direction. It's not enough. We need to get all the way to zero, not just move in the right direction. But a few years ago, we saw no peak in sight. And now we know the peak is is just around the corner. Well, and let's look ahead just a little bit. Uh, Peak into 24. The U.S. was among the strongest negotiators pushing for the phase-out language led by John Kerry. But we also have the leading in the polls candidate for president, Donald Trump, saying he wants to be a dictator for a day so he can drill, drill, drill. 
Yeah, it's a scary situation on many fronts. My own view, I guess, is that a Trump presidency may be less catastrophic than many people fear because the benefits of the IRA. The Inflation Reduction Act, which had uh, a lot of tax credits for cleaning up the climate. Exactly. And payouts, particularly to red states and red districts, are so significant that while there may be some movement to undo some of it, I don't expect that the whole bill and all of its benefits will be rolled back. On top of which, when Donald Trump was elected the first time, we were still living in a paradigm globally where we thought that the U.S. had to lead by example because undertaking a green transition anywhere and everywhere was a kind of a moral burden, an expensive burden that we'd have to do because it was the right thing, but not because we'd be better off. But there's been this sort of radical shift in economic and political thinking about the green transition, which means it may be the case that if Trump were were reelected, that the U.S. would move less quickly than in a, a Biden second term. But I don't think it would have the impact on the global trajectory that we feared a few years ago. I think most countries now see a more prosperous a more just, more healthy future for themselves if they go green faster. And I think that they'll continue on that path. The question is whether, especially countries who can barely afford to make those transitions or who can't afford to make those transitions on their own, get the support they need from nations like the U.S. And while we've made some progress in promising directed climate aid, this COP actually opened with the unveiling of the new loss and damage fund, which has been much talked about over the last decade or so. But the amount of money going to that fund is really quite small. I think $700 million were committed, and some of the lowest estimates I've seen for how much is needed is something like $400 billion. The U.S. committed a paltry $17.5 million, which is a quarter of what Shohei Hotani just signed for with the Dodgers. This is like not a meaningful contribution at all. But we have to say in his defense that he deflected that salary. He's only going to take $2 million a year for 10 years and have it all at the end right, no, no, in his no, defense. I don't want to cast any aspersions on Shohei Hotani. I'm just saying we're a very rich country. We have an enormous yeah. amount of resources. And it tells you something that while John Kerry is going to cop and trying to shame countries like the United Arab Emirates into taking climate change more seriously, the amount of money that we're putting into global aid is shameful. We have quite a long ways to go, and that means that many more people will probably suffer than is necessary. David Wallace-Wells, his 2019 book, Uninhabitable Earth. David, we worry that your next one will be, no, seriously, the really, really, truly (laughs) uninhabitable Earth. David, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. We have a whole series of stories about climate solutions at our website. Check it out at hereandnow.org. Tomorrow on the podcast, Here and Now Anytime, we tell you about some of the best films of the year, including some you may have missed because, you know, the most highly marketed ones aren't always the best ones. It's an absolutely lovely, peaceful, it's one of those movies that makes you come out feeling like you've been at a spa. Hear the whole conversation tomorrow on Here and Now Anytime. Subscribe and follow us on the NPR app so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up, they are legends. Tina Turner, Tony Bennett, Sinead O'Connor, Harry Belafonte. We have more on the artists and activists who soared and who passed away this year. That's next.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Arctic Wolf. The elite security researchers at Arctic Wolf have unveiled their essential insights inside the Arctic Wolf Lab's 2024 threat report. Discover the attack vector behind nearly half of all successful cybercrimes, why ransom demands climbed 20% from 2023, and find out why 2024 will be an especially volatile year for cybersecurity. Learn more and get your copy now at arcticwolf.com NPR. That's arcticwolf.com NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Sinead O'Connor, it seems like just yesterday she was the young, ferocious sensation with the shaved head who made us sit up straight. Now she's gone. One of many legendary performers who left us in 2023. Tina Turner, Harry Belafonte, David Crosby. So we're taking the time to remember musicians who passed. And to help us do that, NPR Arts Desk correspondent Netta Ulibi. Hi, Netta. Hey, Robin. And start with Sinead O'Connor, way too young, in her 50s. Nothing compares to you. It feels like it was on the radio somewhere in the world, around the clock, in the early 1990s. Just remind us of her impact. Sure. I mean, I'm a Generation Xer, so I was brought up by Sinead O'Connor. When I was listening to her as a a college student in the late 80s and early 90s, there were a lot of incredibly powerful women on the airwaves. There were the Indigo Girls, there was Tracy Chapman. But even in that cohort, she stood out. These were women who challenged traditional femininity, but she had this very particular kind of Irish swagger. Mm. She's very strikingly beautiful. I think you probably remember the the, the Lion and the Cobra album cover where her head is, is shaved and she's looking downward and her hands are clasped before her heart, but she really radiated a refusal to compromise. Sinead O'Connor was trained as a bel canto singer, but it says so much that she was given her first guitar when she was a runaway teenager by a nun while she was in reform school for shoplifting. Yeah, we, we, she's talked about how her mother would beat her and have her repeat, I am nothing. I mean, lots of abuse. And of course, she also became so well-known. It was a, a shock around the world when she famously ripped up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. This is 1992. Uh, let's listen to that moment. We find it necessary. We know we will win. We have confidence. In the victory 
of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. And Neda Ulubi, you know, at the time, well, I want you to expand on what happened at the time, but boy, she was ahead of her time in many ways because the huge scandal in the Catholic Church hadn't yet happened. But what was the reaction when she did that? You know, after she says, fight the real enemy, you can hear in the silence the horror of the audience. It is dead silent. Nobody knows how to respond. She was reviled for making that statement. She was mocked. She was shamed. And her career suffered. She never had another big hit. But of course, now we recognize that statement as a ferocious and utterly prescient protest against abuse in a powerful institution. And up until the very end of her life, Sinead O'Connor said over and over she never once regretted making that choice. Yeah. Uh, she opened up in later years about her struggles with bipolar disorder, a suicide attempt. Yeah. She lived a lot of her life, even before the internet, in a very public way. A lot of it was not consensual, but she was very open about her the frailties in her life. When she wanted a boyfriend, she asked her fans if anyone wanted to date her. She asked fans if they had rooms that she could live in. She asked her fans for suggestions for therapists. Mm. She was someone who was seeking throughout her entire life and very much looking looking for something and taking us along with her. Wow. Thank you for that reminder. And, you know, speaking of seeking her entire life, we lost another musician this year, also known as a survivor, the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, died in May 83. Of course, she was in the Ike and Tina Turner Review with her abusive husband, Ike Turner, divorced him in 1978, launched a solo career in the 1980s. Let's listen to the song that propelled her to solo stardom. What's Love Got to Do With It from her 1984 solo album, Private Dancer. Neta Ulubi, you know, she inspired greats like Mick Jagger, Beyonce, inspired a Broadway musical. But there are people who say she didn't get her due in her time. She moved, you know, to another continent. Do you think she was underrated when she was alive? Not by her fans. It's a little hard to to see, for me anyway, to see Tina Turner as, as underrated. Right. She was one of the most successful performers in popular music in the 1980s and 90s. The album you mentioned, Private Dancer, sold 10 million copies. It was in the top 10 for nearly a year. She was one of the biggest stadium touring acts of her era. I mean, Tina Turner was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She got eight Grammys. And yet, and yet, Robin Young, I think we can say that none of that was enough. Tina Turner will never have gotten as, <laughs> as much as she deserved. Until they build, rebuild Rushmore. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. What a woman. And, you know, just her physicality uh, was yeah. amazing. Also spoke out against domestic abuse, we have to note, just like Sinead O'Connor first wrote about it in her 1986 memoir, I, Tina. So it went beyond music. It did. When Tina Turner ran away from Ike Turner in 1976, she had less than 50 cents in her pocket. At that point, she had opened for the Rolling Stones. She had scored hit after R&B hit, and she had to work as a hotel maid in order to make ends meet. The way she was able to build herself back up as a solo performer, completely reinvent herself, not just as a, as a musical icon, but as a 
beacon of survival for women who were inspired by her to leave domestic situations is um, it's hard to overstate the importance of, of her achievement. Yeah. Well, now let's hear about a, an artist who his influence is heard in electronic music, hip hop, film scores. This is the Japanese composer and pianist Ryuchi Sakamoto. Here, his 1983, Riot in Lagos. Talk about Sakamoto. I have to tell you that when we put together the best of list inside of NPR, the first question that was on everybody's lips was, is Sakamoto on it? Is Sakamoto uh-huh. on it? I, it's it's hard not to get excited about him when, when you're familiar with his work. He was one of the very first musicians to incorporate electronic production into popular songcraft. He helped inspire and he collaborated with David Bowie and Iggy Pop. And it's really hard to imagine electronica or hip hop sounding the way they do today without his 1970s band, Yellow Magic Orchestra. Well, you mentioned the list and it is so long. I I just was looking back. Gordon Lightfoot, Jeff Beck, Astrid Gilberto, uh, Burt Bacharach, Fred White of Earth, Wind and Fire, Wayne Shorter, Carla Bley, you know, the jazz pianist. But we have to land on the great Tony Bennett, died in July 96. You know, he did the traditional American jazz standards. I left my heart in San Francisco, rags to riches, 20 Grammy Awards, Lifetime Achievement Award. We got to talk to him so many times, and it was such an honor. What will you miss the most? I just want to throw out, he was 96, and so was Harry Belafonte, another yeah. another uh, performer who, you know, is is a, a titan of, of music. With Tony Bennett, what I will miss the most is his generosity as a performer. Mm-hmm. He was a Vegas crooner, and he probably could have just ridden that cliche into the sunset, but that was not Tony Bennett. He was an artist. He was not a hack. And uh, he he liked to explore and to test the American songbook. So he performed with Ray Charles. He performed with Sheryl Crow, B.B. King, Amy Winehouse, Lady Gaga, and in, in my favorite, Katie Lang, in the most courtly of ways. He was a musician who passed along the torch. Yeah. NPR Arts Desk Correspondent Netta Ulubi helping us remember the musicians, the voices that we lost in this past year. It's, it's quite something. Netta, thank you. Thank you, Robin, so much. I left my heart In San Francisco High on a hill It calls to me to be where little cable cars. Our show comes to you thanks to the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Our stories today are produced by Lynn Menigan. 
Karen Miller-Medson and Sam Rafelson. Our editors are Todd Mont, Julia Corcoran, and Kat Welsh. Technical directors are Caleb Green and Patrick O'Connor. Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and Chris Bentley created our theme music. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. I'm Shirley Jihad. Thank you for being with us. See you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com.